Chapter 2 of Tarzan and the Golden Lion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Herring of Abingdon, Virginia. Tarzan and the Golden Lion by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 2 The Training of Jadbal Ja. And so Tarzan of the Apes and Jane Clayton and Korak came home after a long absence, and with them came Jadbal Ja, the Golden Lion, and Za, the Bitch. Among the first to meet them and to welcome them home was old Muviro, father of Wasimbu, who had given his life in defense of the home and wife of the ape-man. Ah, Wana, cried the faithful black, my old eyes are made young again by the sight of you. It has been long that you have been gone, but though many doubted that you would return, Old Muviro knew that the great world held nothing that might overcome his master, and so he knew, too, that his master would return to the home of his love, and the land where his faithful Waziri awaited him, but that she, whom we have mourned as dead, should have returned is beyond belief, and great shall be the rejoicing in the huts of the Waziri tonight, and the earth shall tremble to the dancing feet of the warriors, and the heavens ring with the glad cries of their women, since the three they love most on earth have come back to them. And in truth, great indeed was the rejoicing in the huts of the Waziri. And not for one night alone, but for many nights did the dancing and the rejoicing continue until Tarzan was compelled to put a stop to the festivities, that he and his family might gain a few hours of unbroken slumber. The ape-man found that not only had his faithful Waziri, under the equally faithful guidance of the English foreman Jervis, completely rehabilitated his stables, corrals, and outbuildings as well as the native huts, but had restored the interior of the bungalow so that, in all outward appearances, the place was precisely as it had been before the raid of the Germans. Jervis was at Nairobi, on the business of the estate, and it was some days after their arrival that he returned to the ranch. His surprise and happiness were no less genuine than those of the Waziri. With the chief and warriors he sat for hours at the feet of the big Buana, listening to an account of the strange land of Paul Don, and the adventures that had befallen the three during Lady Greystoke's captivity there, and with the Waziri he marveled at the queer pets the ape-man had brought back with him. That Tarzan might have fancied a mongrel native cur was strange enough, but that he should have adopted a cub of his hereditary enemies, Numa and Sabor, seemed beyond belief. And equally surprising to them all was the manner of Tarzan's education of the cub. The golden lion and his foster mother occupied a corner of the ape-man's bedroom, and many was the hour each day that he spent in training and educating the little spotted yellow ball. All playfulness and affection now, but one day to grow into a great savage beast of prey. As the days passed and the golden lion grew, Tarzan taught it many tricks, to fetch and carry, to lie motionless in hiding at his almost inaudible word of command, to move from point to point as he indicated, to hunt for hidden things by scent, and to retrieve them, and when meat was added to its diet, he fed it always in the way that brought grim smiles to the savage lips of the Waziri warriors, for Tarzan had built him a dummy in the semblance of a man, and the meat that the lion was to eat was fastened always at the throat of the dummy. Never did the manner of feeding vary. At a word from the ape-man, the golden lion would crouch, belly to the ground, and then Tarzan would point to the dummy and whisper the single word, Kill. However hungry he might be, the lion learned never to move toward his meat until that single word had been uttered by its master. And then, with a rush and a savage growl, it drove straight for the flesh. While it was little, it had difficulty at first in clambering up the dummy to the savory morsel fastened at the figure's throat. But as it grew older and larger, it gained the objective more easily, and finally a single leap would carry it to its goal, and down would go the dummy upon its back with the young lion tearing at its throat. There was one lesson that, of all the others, was most difficult to learn, 
and it is doubtful that any other than Tarzan of the Apes, reared by beasts among beasts, could have overcome the savage bloodlust of the carnivore, and rendered his natural instincts subservient to the will of his master. It took weeks and months of patient endeavor to accomplish the single item of the lion's education, which consisted in teaching him that at the word fetch, he must find any indicated object and return it to his master, even the dummy with raw meat tied at its throat, and that he must not touch the meat nor harm the dummy nor any other article that he was fetching, but place them carefully at the ape-man's feet. Afterward, he learned always to be sure of his reward, which usually consisted in a double portion of the meat that he loved best. Lady Greystoke and Korak were often interested spectators of the education of the Golden Lion, though the former expressed mystification as to the purpose of such elaborate training of the young cub, and some misgivings as to the wisdom of the ape-man's program. "'What in the world can you do with such a brute after he has grown?' she asked. "'He bids fair to be a mighty Numa. Being accustomed to men, he will be utterly fearless of them, and having fed always at the throat of a dummy, he will look there at the throat of living men for his food hereafter.' He will feed only upon what I tell him to feed, replied the ape-man. But you do not expect him to always feed upon men, she interrogated laughingly. He will never feed upon men. But how can you prevent it, having taught him from cubhood always to feed upon men? I am afraid, Jane, that you underestimate the intelligence of a lion, or else I very much overestimate it. If your theory is correct, the hardest part of my work is yet before me. But if I am right, it is practically complete now. However... We will experiment a bit and see which is right. We shall take Jotbalja out upon the plain with us this afternoon. Game is plentiful, and we shall have no difficulty in ascertaining just how much control I have over young Numa after all. I'll wager a hundred pounds, said Korak, laughing, that he does just what he jolly well pleases, after he gets a taste of live blood. You're on, my son, said the ape-man. I think I am going to show you and your mother this afternoon what you or anyone else has never dreamed could be accomplished. Lord Greystoke, the world's premier animal trainer, cried Lady Greystoke, and Tarzan joined them in their laughter. It is not animal training, said the ape-man. The plan upon which I work would be impossible to anyone but Tarzan of the apes. Let us take a hypothetical case to illustrate what I mean. There comes to you some creature whom you hate, whom by instinct and heredity you consider a deadly enemy. You are afraid of him. You understand no word that he speaks. Finally, by means sometimes brutal, he impresses upon your mind his wishes. You may do the thing he wants, but do you do it with a spirit of unselfish loyalty? You do not. You do it under compulsion, hating the creature that forces his will upon you. At any moment that you felt it was in your power to do so, you would disobey him. You would even go further. You would turn upon him and destroy him. On the other hand, there comes to you one with whom you are familiar. He is a friend, a protector. He understands and speaks the language that you understand and speak. He has fed you. He has gained your confidence by kindness and protection. He asked you to do something for him. Do you refuse? No. You obey willingly. It is thus that the golden lion will obey me. As long as it suits his purpose to do so, commented Korak. Let me go a step farther, then, said the ape-man. Suppose that this creature whom you love and obey, has the power to punish, even to kill you, if it is necessary so to do to enforce his commands. How then about your obedience? We'll see, said Korak, how easily the golden lion will make one hundred pounds for me. That afternoon they set out across the plain, Jadbal Ja following Tarzan's horse's heels. 
They dismounted at a little clump of trees some distance from the bungalow, and from there proceeded onward warily toward a swale in which antelopes were usually to be found, moving up which they came cautiously to the heavy brush that bordered the swale upon their side. There was Tarzan, Jane, and Korak, and close beside Tarzan the golden lion, four jungle hunters, and of the four, Jadbal Ja, the lion, was the least accomplished. Stealthily they crawled through the brush, scarce a leaf rustling to their passage, until at last they looked down into the swale upon a small herd of antelope grazing peacefully below. Closest to them was an old buck, and him Tarzan pointed out in some mysterious manner to Jadbal Ja. Fetch him, he whispered and the golden lion rumbled a scarce audible acknowledgment of the command. Stealthily he worked his way through the brush. The antelopes fed on, unsuspecting. The distance separating the lion from his prey was over great for a successful charge, and so Jadbal Ja waited, hiding in the brush, until the antelope should either graze closer to him or turn its back toward him. No sound came from the four watching the grazing herbivora, nor did the latter give any indication of a suspicion of the nearness of danger. The old buck moved slowly closer to Jadbal Ja. Almost imperceptibly, the lion was gathering for the charge. The only noticeable movement was the twitching of his tail's tip, and then, as lightning from the sky, as an arrow from a bow, he shot from immobility to tremendous speed in an instant. He was almost upon the buck before the latter realized the proximity of danger, and then it was too late, for scarcely had the antelope wheeled than the lion rose upon its hind legs and seized it, while the balance of the herd broke into precipitate flight. Now, said Korak, we shall see. He will bring the antelope to me, said Tarzan confidently. The golden lion hesitated a moment, growling over the carcass of his kill. Then he seized it by the back, and with his head turned to one side, dragged it along the ground beside him, as he made his way slowly back toward Tarzan. Through the brush he dragged the slain antelope until he had dropped it at the feet of his master, where he stood looking up at the face of the ape-man, with an expression that could not have been construed into aught but pride in his achievement and a plea for commendation. Tarzan stroked his head and spoke to him in a low voice, praising him, and then, drawing his hunting knife, he cut the jugular of the antelope and let the blood from the carcass. Jane and Korak stood close, watching Jadbal Ja. What would the lion do with the smell of fresh, hot blood in his nostrils? He sniffed at it and growled, and with bared fangs, he eyed the three wickedly, the ape-man pushed him away with his open palm, and the lion growled again angrily and snapped at him. Quick as Numa, quick as Bara the deer, but Tarzan of the apes is lightning. So swiftly did he strike, and so heavily that Jadbal Ja was falling on his back almost in the very instant that he had growled at his master. Swiftly he came to his feet again, and the two stood facing one another. Down, commanded the ape-man. Lie down, Jadbal Ja. His voice was low and firm. The lion hesitated but for an instant, and then lay down as Tarzan of the Apes had taught him to do at the word of command. Tarzan turned and lifted the carcass of the antelope to his shoulder. Come, he said to Jadbal Ja, heal. And without another glance at the carnivore, he moved off toward the horses. I might have known, said Korak with a laugh, and saved my hundred pounds. Of course you might have known it, said his mother. End of chapter.